from WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. On the show today, we learn how students are discussing the conflict in Israel in New Orleans classrooms. And Bob Mann, chair of journalism at LSU's Manship School of Mass Communication, tells us why Jeff Landry's win in the governor's race compelled him to resign. He also discusses larger failures in the Democratic Party during this election cycle. But first, while primary elections have come and gone, members of the U.S. House of Representatives are now scrambling in their fight for leadership. The Times-Picayune, the Advocates Editorial Director and columnist Stephanie Grace joins us now to break it all down. Steph, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. The leadership and standoff among House Republicans has hit close to home for Louisiana. Majority Leader Steve Scalise, who for a long time had been considered a future contender to be Speaker, fell short. Why do you think he couldn't get enough support from his colleagues and their votes? You know, it was a little bit of a surprise, I think, to people who've watched Scalise kind of steadily rise through Congress, um, because it seemed like he really threaded a needle of, you know, that you need to at this particular fraught moment, I guess, in politics. (laughs) You know, he's an institutionalist. He, He came up through the Louisiana legislature. He's not someone who wants to blow up government. I mean, he's very conservative, but he thinks government should, you know, do things. But he's also sided with the kind of MAGA Trump wing of the party, kind of just enough to have credibility with them, it seemed. But one lesson here is that it's really never enough for some people. And, you know, there are people in the in the House who don't really see it as a priority to have a fully functioning legislative branch. And, you know, it's interesting, Donald Trump campaigned for within the within the House Republicans, Donald Trump supported Jim Jordan. Who is, who is a bomb thrower, unlike Scalise. You know, and there seemed to be just a lot going on under the surface here. Mm-hmm. Some of these Republicans, you had on the record and off the record comments. You know, some thought he was too disloyal to Kevin McCarthy, who, of course, was the speaker who had been um, thrown out by the Republican conference by a minority, kind of hijacking the Republican conference a week earlier. But there were others that thought he was not, not too close to McCarthy, but just another member of the leadership that they didn't like. So it's kind of too hot, too cold. We heard things about health concerns over um, his cancer diagnosis. He's being treated for multiple myeloma. He says he's okay. He says he can do the job, but others doubted it kind of publicly, um, including Trump. And, you know, there was that famous speaking appearance back when he was a legislator to a white supremacist group in, in his district. And that came up with some with one or two people. And then, you know, kind of even though he's got this affable personality, it turns out some members just don't really like the way he's dealt with them in, you know, as a member of the leadership and things like whipping votes. And in the end, for, I think, a bunch of different reasons, the numbers just weren't there. Did his fellow Louisiana members rally behind him anyway? Interestingly, not really. One did. uh, Julia Letlow endorsed him, you know, publicly said she was supporting Steve Scalise. Two others said after the fact that they, you know, were sorry he didn't make it and they like him a lot. One was Clay Higgins, who kind of felt at that point after Steve Scalise was out of it, declared his allegiance very quickly for Jim Jordan, who is very much kind of more in, of his ilk. They're both members of the Freedom Caucus. Mike Johnson from up in Shreveport, he he's actually also a member of leadership. He's the vice chair of the Republican conference. And he has put himself forward as a possible speaker if Jim Jordan doesn't make it, which it looks like he won't. 
Um, so that's a complication. And of course, if he were to become speaker, that would be two Louisianans in the one-two position. So that probably would mean Steve Scalise would not be able to be majority leader. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think that's where this is going, but you know, he had his own complications. And the most interesting one was Garrett Graves of Baton Rouge, who what developed into a, a real loyalist, a real kind of member of Kevin McCarthy's inner circle. And he you know, when all this was happening, he kind of went on TV a lot and he said, you know, threw cold water on the idea of just promoting the next person up. And he he kind of made it clear that, like, he was not necessarily with Scalise in a very public way. You know, one person who actually did come to his uh, defense was the Democrat in the delegation, Troy Carter, who um, is a friend of his and who kind of answered the concerns over the appearance before the white supremacist group saying that he does not, you know, he of course is African-American and a Democrat and he does not believe Steve Scalise is racist. So again, what we're, you know, what we're left with at this point is kind of a, a, a delegation that's kind of going a lot of different directions, just like Congress is going a lot of different directions. Stephanie Grace, Times-Picayune, the Advocates Editorial Director and Columnist. Thanks for your time. Thank you. The militant group Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, killing 1,400 Israelis and taking more than 100 people hostage. Since then, Israel has launched a bombing campaign which has killed at least 3,000 Palestinians. There are pictures and videos across the media and the web depicting the violence and its results. What do you tell children and teens about this? And if you're a teacher, do you bring it up in the classroom or just steer clear of it? Joining us to talk about this is Chris Deer. He's a history teacher at Benjamin Franklin High School in New Orleans. He's also an author, two-time winner of St. Bernard Parish District-wide Teacher of the Year, 2020 Louisiana State Teacher of the Year, and National Teacher of the Year finalist. Chris, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me and, and including a teacher voice in this conversation. As a history teacher, how are you grappling with this moment in history? You know, it's incredibly interesting. I teach United States history, and so uh, these discussions are, are vital for our students. But first and foremost, we always have to recognize as teachers that we have to uh, understand that this is a complex situation and it's a sensitive matter. So it requires a lot of careful consideration and at the forefront, because we do address it, we must address this, right? Our students need to have a space where they can talk and discuss and to to learn and, and understand, uh, we must ensure to be objective straight from the start and ensure that we are telling our students what we know, but also being honest about what we don't know. And we come at it as uh, a community trying to understand and, mm -hmm. and sift through a lot of information. For teachers who may be afraid to take this topic on, why should they and where should they start in your opinion? I think history teachers need to take this topic on because, one, it's relevant to the content that we teach. We teach history, but we also teach how that history impacts current events. In terms of teaching something that might be contentious in the classroom, obviously this is contentious, I always uh, tell teachers, or I do what I do in my classroom, is I set the tone as best as possible. I ensure that students are discussing this with positive intent, with empathy, with perspective taken, and ensuring that, you know, we are centering ourselves in a place where we are not harming others or we're not attacking, we're not personally going after other students. 
And in this topic specifically, we have to ensure that anti-Semitism or Islamophobia does not seep into the conversation. So I think when you create these parameters for any conversation, then students, especially if you have cultivated a, a culture of respect in the classroom, can thrive in having these conversations. I guess you really have to take into account first your own beliefs and, and recognize that. Absolutely. And I tell my students, you know, I have my own thoughts. I have my own bias. And so you should analyze everything that I'm saying as well. And you should go home and you should fact check everything I'm saying. You should do your own research. But at the end of the day, I tell my students, I am not an expert, but I'm going to try to paint the picture as the most objective way that I possibly can. Mm -hmm. Since parents and loved ones are so instrumental in giving children their first opinions, how does a teacher deal with a child or teen whose opinion is already seemingly firmly established and may not align with the facts? Yeah, and we see that as teachers. We see students coming in with their own bias, with their own maybe misconceptions as well. I always tell students to understand, because I understand this as well, that we can be wrong about things. And it is possible for us to receive new information to alter our perspectives. And that's something that we hold true as history teachers. And we keep this true in our history class as well. I'm mm -hmm. always constantly talking about myths that have been perpetuated throughout history. And I say that happens too in, in current events as well. So there are students that, that come with firm convictions. Mm -hmm. And I always tell them, as I tell the entire class, that it's okay to have your convictions, but also ensure that you have the facts on the ground, that we're using the best language and we're coming from a place of, of understanding. We're speaking with author and history teacher at Benjamin Franklin High School in New Orleans, Chris Deere, about how to have conversations with students and the current war between Israel and Hamas. And while some students might not feel a connection to the conflict, I imagine that other students, perhaps students who are Jewish or Palestinian, may feel deeply impacted. How do you maintain a sensitivity in the classroom discussions when it can be a very personal topic to some? Absolutely. And this is a topic that does require a lot of sensitivity. I certainly have parameters set in place for students to ensure that they're not saying anything that can be offensive, that they're not attacking other students. And for especially a topic like this, mm -hmm. again, I consistently reiterate that um, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia is never welcome in my class, especially when we discuss these things. It's just never, never going to, uh, you know, be fine by me as a history teacher. Fortunately, we have had these conversations and students have done so well in terms of trying to understand the conflict in ways that I rarely see from adults or the media or social media and whatnot. So it's not necessarily an issue with mm -hmm. students. And I think that goes back to my classroom, but also other teachers' classrooms as well. We have conversations frequently about these topics. And so when something happens, it's not, oh, we're going to have a conversation, you know, our first ever intense, controversial conversation. No, that's what we do in history classes. That's what we've been doing. And that's what we should do. Can you tell us a bit about what con uh, classroom conversations on this topic, what, what have they looked like and felt like so far? Well, I could talk about the way I've structured these conversations. Uh, when everything immediately happened, I informed students about what was going on, what transpired on October 7th, and gave a little background, but told them to just read and understand as much as you can. And I gave them sources to kind of follow and, and get the information. And then this week, starting on Monday, uh, that's when the conversations really started to, to happen. Mm -hmm. 
And I started it by asking them, what do you know and what did you hear? And I gave them an opportunity to fill out a Google form where they can say what they know, they can ask the questions privately, and I can receive them to me. And no one has to see mm -hmm. you know, exactly what they have. And then I pull up uh, maps of the region, the most objective maps that I can find. And I have students write down what they know about the conflict as well. And then I get them to share with their partner. And then I ask the students, okay, tell me, what have you heard? What do you know? And of course, students say things, some of them objective, factual, no doubt about it. But a lot of them are bringing in information that they're hearing from social media that is completely false, that has been debunked numerous times over and over again. Mm -hmm. And that's an opportunity for me to say, because as a teacher, you don't want to just say you are flat out wrong and you are misinformed, obviously. But I do ask students, where did you hear that from? Can you tell us the source? And, and this is what we do in history classes. We always get students to check the source to analyze bias, mm -hmm. to contextualize, to corroborate information. And so students are allowed to bring in the information that they know to the classroom. And with that, with their frame of reference, what I do is give some historical background. I'm writing on the board, different countries, I'm doing timelines, and on the projector I have different maps. Mm -hmm. And then we have conversations about how do we feel about it. We, of course, we want to make sure students feel emotionally safe in these spaces to be able to discuss mm -hmm. and talk about their opinions. What sort of questions are the students asking you? Well, some students have virtually no knowledge. A student wrote on the slip on the Google form, what is Gaza? And so some students are coming in saying, you know, I've never heard of these terms. And then some students are asking questions, why did Hamas do what they did? Other students are asking, uh, why is Israel bombing Hamas? What's... What's the cause of all mm -hmm. of this? So it seems like students, because a lot of them were born, and my students in maybe 2007, 2008, and so they might not have memory of other things that have transpired prior to this. So they are more than aware that they are missing historical contextualization that is necessary to have these conversations. Author and history teacher at Ben Franklin High School here in New Orleans, Chris Deere, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. On Sunday, Manship Endowed Chair in Journalism at LSU's Manship School of Mass Communication, Robert Mann, announced he'll resign from his post next spring after 18 years with the university. The historian, journalist, and Louisiana Politics Hall of Fame member says he's vacating his tenured position because he doesn't trust LSU to back him up if he runs afoul of now-governor-elect Jeff Landry. Landry called for university officials to punish Mann when the two butted heads in 2021. Robert Mann joins me now to discuss last weekend's elections and his reasons for leaving LSU. Bob, thank you for joining. Thanks. Great to be here with you. Can you start by telling us the reasoning behind your resignation from the Manship School? Sure. Well, I had begun thinking about this about two years ago when I had that, uh, as you call it, I think you call it a dust up, but when we had this confrontation and he tried to persuade LSU to, um, to punish me, I began to realize that probably something like this would become necessary if he became governor, because I realized that an attorney general can cajole and maybe uh, pound his fist on the desk, and, and it's pretty easy for a university president to ignore the attorney general who has no control over the university's budget, but mm -hmm. it would be much more difficult, if not impossible, for a university president 
and other university leaders to ignore the governor who controls their budget and who appoints their board. So um, I'm not so much worried about losing my job uh, because I do have tenure. I'm more worried about being the reason why uh, the governor and others in the legislature try to hurt LSU in general and my school, the Manship School in particular. For listeners who are unfamiliar with the incident, can you tell us what happened? So uh, the, the sort of the, the short version is that uh, I was on, I am and was on the, the faculty senate at LSU and I and some colleagues were sponsoring a resolution to urge LSU to strengthen its vaccine mandates and also require weekly testing for students and faculty who refuse to get the vaccine. Um, and um, Landry sent an aide to read a letter to the faculty senate in opposition to that that was full of misinformation and outright lies about the vaccine. And I tweeted about it, pointing out the absurdity of a so-called pro-life politician arguing, urging people not to take a, a life-saving vaccine. And um, that kind of, kind of spun into his demanding that I be punished for um, for criticizing him. And the uh, he didn't like how I referred to the uh, the young woman who read the letter to the faculty senate as a flunky and and it just sort of uh it resulted in a letter to the to the lsu president asking to me, for me to be punished do you think that resigning now will to some extent give landry what he wanted well it may but what i hope it does is highlight the importance of defending the faculty i think that the lsu leadership has been pretty anemic about that and i'm i'm still flabbergasted that three days after landry's election now going into four days that that LSU has still not issued a full-throated defense of faculty and defense of faculty the academic freedom and faculty free speech I think there's a I know I don't think but I know there's a lot of fear among faculty on college campuses across the state particularly at LSU and you would think that this would be a time when when the leadership of the university would want to reaffirm uh, its commitment to mm-hmm. protecting uh, faculty and they haven't done that and I think they hadn't they haven't done that for the same reason they they refused to give us any guidance today about how we should handle COVID outbreaks in our classrooms it's because they're they're worried about provoking the uh, now governor-elect. You've been sharing some emails that you've received from people who are in essence happy to see you go. Uh, this one if you are a liberal, you should find plenty of opportunities way up north. LSU needs to weed out more liberals and become a great university again. There's a lot to unpack yeah. there. Um, yeah. Do you have any reason to believe that could happen? Well, I, I shared those, and I've been sharing those because I want people to realize that it's not just Jeff Landry. who It's not just some minority opinion, some radical uh, corner of public opinion that believes that, that Jeff Landry is was running on the, uh, I think the assumption by a lot of people that he would do something to shut people like me down, that he would, that he would, you know, quote unquote, clean up the universities. What would that mean to the LSU community? Well, it would mean a, a diminished faculty. It would mean that people are no longer feel that they can do the kind of research that they feel like they need to do. That when, when, when you no longer feel like you can speak about your research or do your research, but speak about your research without fear of political retribution, this place or any other university whose faculty uh, self-censors like that ceases to be a, a real university. We become a, a political arm of whoever's in power. Speaking of politics, let's shift to the elections. Um, while Republicans were expected to outperform Democrats this election cycle, Landry's outright win in the primary was largely seen as a 
A, surprise, and B, embarrassment for the Louisiana Democratic Party establishment. What went wrong, do you think? Was it overconfidence? Well, I think there was there was definitely overconfidence on the Democratic side that there would be a runoff. And I think a lot of what the Democrats, particularly Sean Wilson, wanted to, and planned to say about Landry and how he, he planned to engage him was was they were waiting to do that in the runoff and they would have probably the most attention on their candidacy. It didn't work out that way, obviously. And I think it's because they took they took a runoff for granted, which they shouldn't have. But I think it's also uh, the, the fact that the, the Democratic Party, the Democratic candidate, even the Democratic governor did not do really much to generate enthusiasm. I mean, the turnout for a Democrat, the, the overall turnout in, in Orleans Parish is 27 percent. That ought to that that is a that's a disgrace that a Democrat could not generate enough enthusiasm in Orleans Parish to to, uh, uh, you know, to get a, a lower turnout than the, the, than the state average. That's 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 just indicative of how little enthusiasm the Democratic Party, the Democratic candidate was generating for his candidacy. We're speaking with Robert Mann, professor, about last weekend's elections and his resignation from LSU's Manship School of Mass Communication. Um, do you think it perhaps also contributing to this was the confusing signals as who was going to run for governor as, as soon as this past spring? Yeah, I do. I think that the uh, that Katie Bernhardt, the, the chair of the Democratic Party, floating her own name out there and really undermining other potential uh, candidates played a... Uh, uh, a significant role in the lack of enthusiasm, because I think it was, you know, even until, you know, just six months ago, I wasn't sure whether she was going to, she was going to be the candidate, which was, I, I just, I just find that mind boggling that a, that a chair of a party would, uh, would undermine her candidate or potential candidate in that way. It's just, it's just hard to fathom actually. Besides issues with the state Democratic Party's approach to this campaign cycle and the runoff, do you believe there are any other factors that contributed to the low voter turnout? Well, again, I think it's, you know, there, there, there were issues that I think that a Democrat could have been talking about. And uh, one of them is, is reproductive rights. I mean, this, this is in post, the, you know, in this post Dobbs period, uh, women and their allies are pretty, are pretty uh, outraged by the attempts by political leaders in places like Louisiana to deny them bodily autonomy. And I'm just flabbergasted that 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 wasn't a major theme in this election. I mean, it was just it was just low hanging fruit that I can't believe that 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 um, that 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 Wilson didn't take advantage of. Mm -hmm. And I think it didn't help that you had a governor who was on really on the other side of that issue that depressed uh, Democrats across the board. But you have to give people something to to, uh, to you have to give you have to give them something that motivates them to go vote. And just saying I'm a bridge builder is 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 not enough, especially in this era when people are think are more, more worried about losing their bodily autonomy, losing their ability to get medical care if they have a difficult pregnancy. Why that was not a major issue in this campaign, I I, I will never understand. In your opinion, is the Democratic Party still a viable opposition party in state politics? No, it's not. It's it's not a it's not a party at all. It's 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 a shell of its former self, and it's being run, I think, by people who don't have the party's best interests at heart. I think this 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 chair needs to resign. I'm I'm shocked that she didn't quit, turn in her resignation on Saturday night. Uh, that she's still there is a disgrace. Professor Robert Mann of LSU's Manship School of Mass Communication. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 
from WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. Thanks to our guests, the Times-Picayune, the Advocate's editorial director and columnist, Stephanie Grace, award-winning history teacher and author at Benjamin Franklin High School, Chris Deere, and Manship Endowed Chair in Journalism at LSU's Manship School of Mass Communication, Bob Mann. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our assistant producer, Aubrey Procell. Our engineer, Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. More at rouses.com with additional support from Southern Strategy Group.